In our last class on the Second London Confession of Faith, we began to cover chapter 19, which was on the subject of the law of God. And because time didn't permit, we ended in paragraph 5. And so I promised you all that I would make an audio available with the rest of the teaching on the remaining three paragraphs. And so here it is. Thank you for tuning in. Now in the last recording, we covered paragraphs 1 through 4 of this chapter, which dealt with the distinctions between the moral law, which is written in man's heart, the ceremonial law, which were laws of worship and instruction, that were all fulfilled in the life and ministry of Christ. And we dealt with the judicial laws, which were specifically for the nation of Israel, and also expired with Israel, even though their general equity had moral value. Now in this session, we'll continue on, beginning with paragraph 5. And so, let's go ahead and look at paragraph 5 of the uh, Confession. And it reads this way. It says, The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the Gospel. Instead, He greatly strengthens it. Now this is a very important paragraph, paragraph 5. And it seems like the paragraph, or the paragraphs before it, worked toward making this one as clear as possible. And its point is this, that while it is true that the ceremonial law is abrogated, and the judicial law has expired, the moral law is not abrogated, or expired. It is always and forever binding on all. And the first sentence says, the moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. Now, why is this the case, that it never expires? Why is it that the judicial laws and the ceremonial laws become obsolete, but the moral law doesn't? The answer is that the judicial and the ceremonial laws were only temporal expressions of the moral. And yet the moral law is not in any way a temporal expression, since it is based on the eternal character of God. Right? God is holy, and therefore his law against having other gods before him can never be abrogated. Uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. Why? Because God himself is truth, and therefore the law can never be abrogated. And so, obligation to obey the moral law applies to every single person, beginning with Adam and all the way through uh, each of his posterity. And this obligation is not reduced one iota for the justified. It still is a requirement. We see in Matthew 5.19, it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and there is no basis to believe that Christ's fulfillment of the law on behalf of the justified in any way abrogates the justified person's obligation to the law, the moral law, that is. And the paragraph goes on to say that this moral law is binding even after conversion, not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. In other words, the moral law is creational. It didn't begin on Mount Sinai. It was instilled in man's nature at creation. All ten of them. Not nine commandments, not eight commandments, not seven, but all ten. Many have argued that the believer is no longer under any obligation to keep the moral law. However, they would be forced to re-examine their view when asked if the Christian is now free to murder. Of course they're not free to murder. Or if they're asked if they are free to worship other gods now that they're saved. That, that's not the case. No one is free to break these moral commands. And therefore, as long as God never expires, then his holiness, which is expressed in the moral law, will never expire either. Uh, now, uh, with that in mind, let's move into paragraph 6. And I'll go read paragraph 6 here. And it says this. It says, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for, and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings, the blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good, and refrain from evil, because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. So that was paragraph 6. And, and so right in the beginning of this paragraph, we see where it says that true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. And so being that the Christian is no, long, no longer under a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace, the law no longer has the power to condemn you. And therefore, it stops being a tool of condemnation 
and cannot be used as a tool of, of grace and, and, and of many wonderful things that could help us and guide us to, um, to, to live holy. Uh, it, it becomes a tool of sanctifying grace. Now, if the true believer is not justified or condemned by the law, then what is the role of the law in the believer's life? Well, this paragraph, I think, breaks it down uh, the best. It says that the law is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It also says that it directs and uh, obligates them to live according to its precepts. And we see from the Bible that, that we're called to live holy. And so the law directs us and obligates us to, to live according to God's precepts. And it also exposes the sinful corruptions of our nature, uh, our heart, and our lives often. And as they examine themselves, uh, this is what the, the paragraph says, it says, as they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of uh, and humiliation for and hatred of sin along with a clear view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And so here, again, we see that the law is useful for the Christian to guide them to, to walk in accordance with the will of God, which should be our desire, right? Uh, now that we've been born again and our hearts have been tr changed and transformed and the Spirit lives and dwells in us, uh, it should be our desire to, to want to walk in accordance with the will of God. And what other uh, better way is there than to look at the law of God, which is a reflection of God's holiness uh, as it serves as a guide um, for us to walk in them. Uh, we also read in Galatians, uh, specifically Galatians 3.24, where it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now, the uh, paragraph goes on to say that the law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin, right? And the punishment threatened by the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they or we, are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. And so this speaks on how the law is useful for the Christian to help him or her avoid the consequences that follows from a life of sin and to restrain their corruptions. And finally, this paragraph ends by saying that the promises of the law likewise show them, or show us, God's approval of obedience and the blessings that we may expect when we keep it. Even though these blessings are not owed to us by the law as a covenant of works. Now if people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, it says here in the paragraph that that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. Uh, that's a pretty important uh, part of this paragraph. Uh, we see that the last sentence here is important because it stresses the fact that when a Christian submits to God's law, it by no means that they are being legalistic 
And oftentimes this is the accusation from those who really don't want to follow uh, the law of God or, or think that we don't have to follow the law of God. Um, but again, uh, as we see in this paragraph, um, it, we see that it stresses the fact that when a Christian submits to God's law, it by no means that they're being legalistic. And, and like I said, this is often the claim that comes from those who reject the moral law of God. They're often quick to cry legalism. But the purpose of the new birth in regeneration is that we would walk in the statutes of God. And we see this from Ephesians 2.10, where it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so these good works that are being referred to in this passage is none other than the law of God and nothing else. And so we see that God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Now moving on, let's look at uh, the last paragraph, paragraph 7. And paragraph 7 says this. It says, These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God, as revealed in the law, requires. Neither are they aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. And so the uses of the law found in the prior pa paragraph, paragraph 6, are as follows. Number one, the law is a beneficial rule of life. Uh, number two, the law brings about conviction of sin, showing the need for Christ. And then we see the, a third use, which is the law is useful in restraining the remaining corruption of the regenerate. Now, this is not to be confused with the, the commonly known three uses of the, of the law uh, in general. This is uh, three uses in which we see, specifically in paragraph 6, uh, referring to uh, the Christian life and how the law should be used um, for the believer. Now, what the confession is teaching is that the uses of the law are in no way contrary to the gospel. If anything, it affirms that these uses of the law complies well with the gospel. And so oftentimes people think that the law is contrary to the gospel. Now we can admit that the law and the gospel are distinct, um, but uh, as we see testified in scripture and also in our confession, uh, it affirms that these uses of the law complies well with the gospel. And, and we read in the second sentence here in this last paragraph that it is the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God is as revealed in the law uh, and what the law requires. And I like how our confession states it in uh, chapter 9. 
I was just going to quote from that chapter. Uh, it says that when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. And so this is the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is, is to transform the, the true believer by regeneration into a new creation, a new creation who is enabled to freely and joyfully do the will of God. Now, again, what is the will of God? Well, the will of God is revealed in the law and, of course, in the rest of Scripture. And the very nature of the gospel itself is that we were given the Spirit to now be able to walk in obedience to the law. I uh, like what Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven says. It says this. It says, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And we see that uh, in the New Covenant, this is what happens. The Spirit does this work in us. It causes us to walk in His statutes. And it causes us to be careful to obey God's moral law. Again, in the New Covenant, the Spirit of Christ causes the regenerate to walk and obey. What do they walk in? Well, they walk in God's statutes. And what do they carefully obey? They obey God's rules. What are these statutes and rules? Well, it's the moral law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Well, this concludes the chapter on the law of God, and I pray that in light of the good news, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we learn to love God's law and to use it to walk in His ways, not only as a mirror to reveal our sinfulness, but also as a guide to please our Creator, who is worthy of our obedience. And so with that, I'll go ahead and conclude by, by praying. Lord, I thank you again for not only saving us, but giving us a guide, your law, which reveals your holy character. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that the law no longer condemns us in Christ, but now it serves as a tool to guide us to walk in your ways. And so may you sanctify us with it. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.